All right, welcome back, everybody. This is the Faultline Podcast, accompanying edition number 902. My name is Alex Davis. I'll be the host, as per. Joining us is our esteemed editor, Tommy Flanagan. Hello. And our esteemed, but slightly poorly, slightly under-the-weather colleague, Rafi Cohen. Oh. Hello. How are you feeling today, Rafi? You all right? Hanging in there? Uh, yes, sure. Why not? <laughs> Enthusiasm. So, Tommy, <laughs> has it been a busy week? Because I've just been buried in, in annual reports, so I, I have no idea. Well, we better make this pod short and snappy then, for Rafi's sake. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, no, it's been a, it's been a good week. I mean, I know I'm I'm quite conscious sometimes about this podcast turning into the Cinemedia show, but um, well, there was some genuinely super significant news earlier this week as Cinemedia made its first ever acquisition as an independent software company, free from the shackles of Cisco, um, and it's chosen to spend its money wisely in the security sector, buying content armor for its uh, forensic watermarking clout. I mean, everyone in the industry will have heard the news by now. It's uh, four or five days old, but still, I haven't seen a single news outlet comment on the the actual ramifications of the deal for the wider digital security space because they could be potentially huge. And the problem is that pretty much all the patents for forensic watermarking have been wrapped up by Content Armor and NextGuard. And NextGuard was acquired by Nagra back in 2016. So that means Cinemedia, Nagra, um, Kodelsky own the market essentially and that that's that means that pretty much all the competition excluding perhaps for a matrix and a deto license watermarking from content armor or and or next card so that's uh companies like vxx vxs orca cast labs interdrust and inside secure before it um became very matrix to, to name a few so then this deal was a huge amount of power in cinemedia's hands as there's absolutely nothing stopping it from saying actually no i'm not gonna let you the competition license content armor patents anymore once the existing contracts expire whenever that may be so either that i think or cinemedia might decide to hike the prices and outprice um these, these licensees because it doesn't have to worry about them um taking their business elsewhere because there isn't an elsewhere essentially so we can we can get a sense of that by looking at the the digital watermarking alliance membership list which is only about um uh, is seven companies strong actually, and the only two companies I haven't already uh, mentioned are Media Science International and Mark Any. Um, the latter is a Korean firm. We aren't very familiar with either of them, but um, we wouldn't be surprised if both of them were licensing patents from Content Armor or and or NextGuard. So naturally, I've reached out to Cinemedia for comment a little optimistically, um, admittedly, and on whether the strategy behind the acquisition is to play dirty and essentially shut off the watermarking watermarking taps for the competition so uh, a representative told us at this point in time we have no plans to withdraw from any existing agreements that content armor has signed with its customers and the 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 first five words at this point in time uh, is all the evidence we need that cinemedia is going to start getting sassy eventually and so over the next few weeks i'm going to try reaching out to the rest of the security community to try and establish what the feelings are about this and what the alternatives are there might be more than we than we know but from, as far as i can tell this is a really really sort of small market and and there's not a lot of op- options so uh, yeah what happens if content armor isn't an option anymore for for these for these customers and vxs orca is a really good example because it's been licensing content armor watermarking patents for quite a while and a couple of years ago we even suggested it should acquire content armor because they're both french they seem like a great match but this never materialized and i think why it didn't is because vo has been busy developing its in-house dynamic 
watermarking products which it then released in in 2019 but then the the fact that there hasn't been a patent war suggests that that technology is actually based on patents from content armor um so and, and the same could also be be said for uh, adetto so there's still a, a lot of stuff to be sorted out and i think cinemedia could could yeah cause some real predicaments with this move depending on how it plays its card and 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 vo among others has to be absolutely kicking itself that it didn't beat cinemedia to the punch and and to make this acquisition a, a few years ago um and i should probably provide a little bit of context and mention that the rising demand for watermarking is being driven by studios and we, we started hearing about this about five years ago when movie labs insisted on having watermarking as an extension to drm for 4k uhd titles and this is because watermarking is this very effective and scalable method of identifying the source of individual streams on the internet and and including for these hybrid card cardless conditional access systems in the early days and then on to proprietary drms for multi-screen tv so the the watermark can be embedded at the encoding level and it's in the cdn or in the device itself it can be read from any file copy that's being shared around and uh, the the way that content armor's techniques work is quite cool because it can also reduce the storage and cdm bandwidth requirements as it removes the need for having duplicate video streams as usually with watermarking there's there needs to be a bitstream based and a manifest based approach so that's an added bonus so um yeah to wrap up as i said we'll be looking to provide some updates as the story develops because i feel like this is uh, kind of the tip of a of a rather large iceberg so a nice bit of vertical <laughs> integration and then maybe capping it all off with a lovely bit of lawsuits so oh yeah could could get juicy right good stuff thanks very much tommy thank you uh we'll move on to the second long form piece now this comes from rafi and something in the water uki's fiber extension opportunity rafi could you tell us more please yeah so um the uk government are having another go at uh, trying to converge various bits of utility infrastructure and um, they're offering 5.5 million dollars essentially as a almost competition for this uh fiber in water initiative trying to kill two birds with one stone which is um furthering the UK's broadband and mobile networks, um, especially to hard to reach areas where the fibre coverage is pretty ancient or non-existent. Um, and at the same time, kind of maintain drinking water infrastructure, like uh, using the fibre to kind of uh, watch out for leaks and stuff and report better on that. Um, so yeah, it's essentially kind of a competition for people to come forward with ideas um, and they'll hopefully find partners to deliver studies and pilots. So it's still very early days. Um, uh, yeah, the five uh, still kind of a minority of the population, but a significant amount, uh, about 600,000 homes in the UK uh, with terrible ancient internet. Um, I remember Tommy spoke on the podcast in December about this company, 4G Internet, who uh, quoted someone $600,000 for a quote to upgrade their house's internet. Um, um, Project Gigabit has been an elect was an election promise of Boris Johnson's in 2019. He put forward $7 billion. Um, to try upgrade the company's the country's inf internet infrastructure, uh, many have since said that this is unrealistic and it's not going to be met. I think uh, they want um, gigabit speed for everyone in the country by 2025. Um, obviously, there are clear benefits to this strategy of sticking fibre in the water mains. Um, ministers have already said that digging up land is always the biggest obstacle to kind of completing project gigabit. Um, there's an estimated 1 million kilometres of underground utility ducts that fibre could be laid in. Um, and it's estimated that if this was done, there's potential $11 billion in savings for telcos uh, in building costs. So, you know, clearly the 
I don't know, the, the pull factor is there. Um, and it's kind of, you know, similar things have been done before in 2017. Um, SSE's NEOS networks laid fiber optic cable through Thames water sewers. But obviously drinking water is a very different game. Um, it's a lot more prized quality has to be maintained. Uh, the fiber has to be far more unobstructive and rigorously tested. Uh, we've already heard that the drinking water inspectorate, which was a body I did not know about, um, are going to have to verify everything. Um, so there's definitely going to be a few headaches there. Um, and yeah, we just kind of looked at a few examples in the past of kind of convergence initiatives or telcos that have tried to converge utility infrastructure. But the two most significant ones we could recall in the fault line archive were uh, to do with power. Uh, there was Italy's fast web, which kind of became pretty legendary in the early 2000s. Uh, it was started at the turn of the millennium in 1999, and it essentially just threw down fiber cables whenever someone in Italy dug up power lines. Um, and in doing this, it was able to deliver one of the first IPTV and one of the first uh, video on demand services, um, which made it quite a name uh, in the 2000s. Um, and yeah, it was very popular and was acquired by Swisscom in 2007, which still owns it today. I think it might be the number two cable co in Italy um, today. And then uh, kind of perhaps less successful is, although we don't really know where it's at, is AT&T's AirGig, which was putting uh, plastic wireless antennas on power lines, but not actually powering the antennas from the power lines. It was just using the power lines essentially for their height and for the line of sight they provided. Um, the last serious mention of this, I mean, there was a lot of coverage of it in Faultline around 2016, 2017. And then it kind of went quiet. And the last serious mention anywhere was a kind of tease in the 2018 press release that it'd be a launch in 2021. Um, so we're well over halfway of the year and still no, still no word. Um, but yeah, all we can really think is that a lot, you know, a lot of the the silence has been there was a just really a lack of competition that kind of drove AT&T to really complete AirGig or to launch AirGig. You know, there weren't really any copycats, partly because 5G networks were and still are pretty immature. And uh, especially around that 2016-17 time period, um, AT&T were kind of really focusing all their broadband attention on GFAST over coaxial cable. So, yeah, that's I don't know. We'll see. We'll see how this thing goes. But if you know, if AirGig didn't really take off, I think drinking water is going to be much more of a headache, to be honest. Yep, I um I get my fiber via telephone pole uh, from BT, and I was quite impressed by that. But I, I might have mentioned this on the podcast before, but when I started in 2013, it was like supremely obvious to me, um, you know, hey, why didn't they just lay fiber once? Um, and yeah, instead we've had all manner of strange workarounds to just avoid digging a common trench. Hmm. Um, but yeah, drinking water, lots of pipes, um, lots of loops. I can't, can't believe uh, Boris Johnson's made it into the the pod. He must be unwell. Raffy. <laughs> <laughs> or BJ, yeah. Alexander de Feffel. All right. Thanks very much, Raffy. We'll keep an eye out. Um yeah, I like the air gig stuff, but uh yeah, the water might be a bit more pragmatic. Um sweet. All right then. Um so we'll move on to the the final long form. Um I'll rattle through this one. Uh, this one is Cerberus ramps up Zixi ties in maturing remote cloud production realm. Um, so the, the gist here was uh, Cerberus, which is a UK company um, specializing in sort of video uh, infrastructure, I guess, get, getting video files from one place to another, usually on the production side. Um, they announced that they'd um, added Zixi to their new IO offering. Um, so then we went and had a sniff around, spoke to the founders, and um, yeah, this shouldn't be surprising because Cerberus is the official Zixi reseller in the UK. But 
it's um it's it's a slightly weird relationship um in which they're like a reseller as well as a customer um and then also a supplier to Zixie. So they have been experimenting with SRT and wrists, so they've added Zixie to the mix now. Um and we sort of sat down with the one of the founders, um Chris Clark, to sort of get the the history of it and and where it sort of uh, started from where it's heading to um and there was there was actually quite an interesting use case here um because uh, it turns out in the UK um most of the venues where you want to get uh live video from so usually for sports events but also for you know just entertainment and government and sometimes household worship stuff they're actually um, according to Clark pretty good at having the necessary fiber circuits. They're, they're fairly well experienced in being able to move uh, video from sort of point to point or point to multipoint. Um, but there was this uh, use case which which was uh, of note, and that was in Saudi Arabia in the uh, rematch between Joshua uh, and Ruiz. And in that one, the local production firm uh, that was supplying Matchbox. Uh, no, Mashroom Boxing, sorry, uh, was using satellite. And, and that was the plan. They were going to use satellite for the main event. But uh, Cerberus had been providing um, this secure sort of fiber link for the press event, some of the training stuff, the weigh-in, like all this secondary content that wasn't the the main draw. And on the day of the, the fight, the satellite link becomes a bit untenable because of a sandstorm. It keeps dropping in and out. So the sort of backup was put onto primary production and it worked kind of flawlessly and um i know it's it's a use case and it's a it's a sort of a good story as postal horror story but it shows really that this kind of world for the satellite truck as like your primary distribution or contribution uh, mechanism is it's just it seems very outdated and, and this ties into something that uh, rethink tv is like an arrow which is the uh, the cloud production environment. So if you are adding in all of the satellite latency and you're trying to do stuff remotely, it doesn't work very well. But if you're using fiber um, to sort of distribute it via kind of dedicated um, pipelines, essentially over the internet, then you get to do all these sort of fancy remote production um, features. So Cerberus and, and the, their like are sort of the, the backend players that are kind of enabling all of this. Um, and then there were sort of, there's a few signs um, and it might be a bit uh, sort of speculative now, but in the UK at least, which has a fairly influential production um, ecosystem, Cerberus is the Zixi reseller, but uh, Cer uh, Zixi has a rival called LiveView, and LiveView recently acquired a Garland Partners, which were a sort of major um, seller of film and production equipment, and now it's a LiveView you know, exclusive shop. Um, so LiveView has a rival protocol to Zixie, a rival protocol to SRT and RIST. Um, and it would be quite interesting, I think, to try and chart the sort of allegiances between each of the protocols, the resellers, the production houses, and see if, if there's any kind of battle lines being drawn. But the, the background really there um, is just that we sort of expect some sort of a showdown between SRT and RIST, which are the sort of the main, the main approaches that have the sort of open standard cred. Uh, even though LiveView will, will claim it's an open standard too. Um, so seeing how that would, would go down in a, a big old showdown would be um, of, of note, I think. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of interesting stuff um, in the background of of Cerberus and, and sort of where they came from, different technologies they support. But yes, um, I'll leave that for the long form uh, if you want to dive into that in a bit more detail. So we'll move on now 
to the worth noting section. And as is tradition, Rafi, five years ago today, what was going on? Uh, five years ago, Amino launched its first software-only contract with um, Hong Kong operator PCCW. Um, it was using Amino's Enable software platform, which provided a layer of software below the middleware in set-tops. And this meant that PCCW could adjust the middleware and UI on its existing footprint of now one UHD set-tops uh, to roll out the 4K version of its Now TV service. Um, Amino had inherited, inherited the Enable uh, software platform with its 2015 acquisition of US-based cloud TV company Entone. Um, and it was clearly kind of moving in a software direction at that time because it also just recently acquired Swedish OTT system vendor Books Media. Um, and this software-led M&A charge was quite a trend of the time. Uh, in the 12 months prior to five years ago this week, RS had acquired Pace and Technicolor had acquired Cisco's set-top business. So there was clearly a lot of activity in the market. Yeah, Entone is a blast from the past. Uh, mm. <laughs> that's a, a good a good name. Um, but yeah, right. Uh, Tommy, any other highlights? Uh, well, yeah, speaking of PCC, W, I should mention that we've got a really great interview this week with uh, a really extensive interview um, with uh, Scenic, who is a supplier of um, PCCW's watch uh, party feature. But I wanted to pick something a little bit left field from our worth knowing section. So there's a, a Russian video analytics company that's come onto our radio called Entech Lab, which has developed a detection technology for recognizing faces as well as silhouettes of people and cars. It's kind of for the surveillance space, but also for things like urban planning and other commercial um, areas like that. And it's dubbed Find, Fa Find Face Multi. Well, fight face multi, which is great. It sounds like something Yoda would say. And, and this uses an advanced algorithm for multi-object analytics that it claims practically none of its customers offer. So something a little bit different. Good stuff. Um, there's a weird final little note here. Um, Freewheel uh, has sort of published a, a study um, claiming that 70% of households in sort of West Europe are using connected TVs. And that struck me as a bit high because um, I've had my head buried in this for a while. I went and had a look and uh, we got a little snippet at the table in there um, just to, to show you a few little problems there um, in that the CTV penetration seems to be a bit higher than uh, sort of it should be. Um, so a little bit of skepticism there, um, but I mean, it's, it's not exactly a groundbreaking conclusion, is it, that connected TVs fuel VOD uh, usage. But, but yes, um, numbers are hard, so I, I have sympathy. Um, alrighty then. Thanks very much, chaps. We've reached the end of fault line 902. Tommy, have we got anything lined up for 903? Uh, well, it's a little bit quiet, quieter next week compared to the last couple of weeks, but we've got the Stream TV Ad Summit um, going on early next week, which I, I don't know if that's on Rafi's radar, given that's his remit. But, um, it is. Excellent. All right, we might have to uh, divvy it up then. Excellent stuff. All right, then. Um, so we've got that to look forward to. Please head to rethinkresearch.biz to check us out, you'll find a link to a free four-week free trial of uh, yeah, Faultline. So you can have a read through there. The exec summaries for Rethink TV are up there too. Uh, we've got a webinar coming up actually for Rethink TV at some point. Um, I think the 24th is in my head. That's on our Android TV RDK forecast. Um, and yeah, please leave us a review on your podcasting app of choice. That would be swell. And uh, we will catch you next week, I think. Yeah, cheers then. Bye.